Turn your Bible, please, with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. All of our kids, first grade through eighth grade, are doing a nativity escape room today in the fellowship room. I don't know exactly what that is, but it sounds very exciting. So I can't wait to hear all the reports. Suzanne has been hard at work uh, getting everything ready, and Lisa was helping out. So they were getting all their stuff ready this morning, and it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. So you have to ask them about that. We're excited. Matthew chapter 2. So this is a familiar story to you. We're going to talk about the wise men who visit Jesus. And at this point in the story, what's happening in Matthew chapter 1, the gospel of Matthew, this recounting of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done, Matthew is writing this particular book to the Jews, and he's telling them about the kingdom of God that has come and the King Jesus who has come. And so he has already recounted about the birth of Jesus, and now the timing, unlike most of our nativity scenes, is about two years later. So Jesus is maybe about two years old. Um, they have sort of settled, and they are uh, waiting. And so they are going to uh, be visited by these wise men that come. So keep in mind that the timing is a little different than we often see in the movies or in the nativity scenes. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them when it had come to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, notice not the manger, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archaeus was reigning over Judah in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was that what was spoken by the prophets would be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Praise the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the unfolding love story that you've given us of how, Lord, you have rescued us. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son into the world full of peril. Lord, that you sent him humbly, Lord, that he might, though king of all things, Though upholding all things by the, world, by the word of his power, Lord, you sent him that he would be born in a humble place, that he would grow up in a humble place, that he would grow up on the run. Lord, we are so blessed to have a Savior who has come into the situation of our world to save us and to make us holy. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our spirits that we might understand your word. Lord, we want to bless you. We want to honor you with our lives. Help us, Lord, today to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In, uh, in 2005, 2006, I went to uh, Baghdad. I was a soldier in the Army. And so Christmas of 2005, uh, coming into the new year for 2006, I was in Baghdad. And my platoon that I was in charge of, I had about 45 guys, and we were military police. And so we'd run around and do stuff with the Iraqi police. And my guys got tasked on Christmas for a special mission. And our special mission was to relieve the normal guards, and we were going to guard the base. That was, our, that was our mission for that day. And so usually we had been out driving in trucks and going places and doing things. And on Christmas, we were tasked to instead man the guard towers that are around the base. So imagine there's a really high wall that's around the whole base, and then there's these guard towers that are sporadically placed throughout. And so my soldiers were up in the guard towers. And so Christmas night, uh, I went around to see them all on actually Christmas Eve to check on them and see how they were doing and uh, go up in all the guard towers in the middle of the night. So it was about midnight, one, two in the morning, and I was going to check on all our guys. And so I put on all my gear and I walked up and the, the staircase to get up into the guard towers were really narrow and tall. And so they go kind of straight up and they're narrow. And so I remember climbing up the first one to check on some of my guys. And it's a weird feeling because it's a vulnerable place. Because you're just in a guard, everybody knows where you are. You don't necessarily know where they are. You're looking for whoever might be out there, but you're definitely in that spot. And so it's a weird feeling coming up onto that guard tower because there's kind of nowhere to go. You can't hide. Maybe you can jump back down, but you're really high up, so it's just a weird feeling. And so I remember coming up the last couple steps to come into the guard tower, and I could see the top of the wall coming. And as I'm climbing the steps, it's coming lower and lower, and suddenly I'm exposed. And it was just such a strange feeling. You know, I'd been on a bunch of missions. I'd been outside the wire, as we called it, doing all these combat missions and stuff. And so I was used to the danger, but I wasn't used to the vulnerability of it, of sort of just being up there. And everybody can see you. It's like, it's like just, you're just there. And so I came up and, and checked on the guys, and um, they were all trying to stay awake and all that kind of stuff. And so I was just making sure they were doing OK and, and really awake and watching. And thankfully, it was a peaceful night. Everything was fine. It was a strange feeling, though. It was a strange feeling standing on top of that wall. It was especially strange not only because I was vulnerable, but because the base was built in an unlikely area. 
So imagine a big highway like 40 right here, that's right outside the, the church building, that just basically dead ends at a big base. That'd be kind of what we've had. Giant four-lane highway, six-lane highway, that was uh, basically coming to our base and extended out, but it went to little known places and farther away. And we were in the southern, eastern part of the city. And so if you want to be in Baghdad, we were kind of the main border before you got into the next region. Everything's desert. Baghdad's funny because it's kind of an oasis. So as you think about the Middle East, it's basically desert. But Baghdad itself has some water and there's green things and it's a little different. But it's not everywhere. It's not like Ireland or even like here where there's green fields everywhere. And so the people, especially the poor people, have to do what they can do. And right outside the base, for whatever reason, there was a, a landfill. And so the landfill was basically just a place where everybody had thrown stuff they didn't want. There was everything out there from old vehicles to just regular trash to whatever, but most people burned their trash, so it wasn't like what we think of in a normal landfill. It was just a filthy, gross area, more or less. That was where the poor shepherds would go take their flocks to eat. They would walk around the landfill. So as I came to the top at one in the morning of this uh, weird, narrow staircase to look out onto Baghdad to protect our base, what I was looking at was a landfill and sheep and people living in the landfill. They had converted some of those old vehicles into little houses. Every one of them had a satellite dish. It's weird. They all had satellite dishes so they could watch TV, but that was their house, living in the landfill with their sheep grazing on our trash. It was nasty. And amongst that, maybe danger that would take our life. Weird feeling. You know, Jesus came, and he didn't just come and get received by these wise men who came and brought him gifts, and then everything was wonderful. They didn't inaugurate him to be the king. They were asking, where is the king of the Jews? He already was the king. He was born king of the Jews. These people from the east, they already knew it. But when they came and they brought their gifts, it didn't suddenly transport him to a palace where all of a sudden now he was installed to be the king of, of Israel and everything was made perfect. Instead, he was in a vulnerable place. The God of the universe who created all things by just breathing out his word. The God who had formed us, the covenant God who had maintained his promises throughout all these generations, the one who is going to save us from sin, also was really just a two-year-old little kid, fully, ma fully man and fully God, and really vulnerable to swords and to danger and living in poverty and all these kind of things. And the wise men show up, and what do they do? They immediately fall on their knees before him and worship him. How would they know how to do this? Who are these guys that just sort of come out of nowhere? A lot of scholars think that maybe these wise men were from Babylon. You know, Babylon was a 40 days journey if you were really hurrying. If you really hurried, no breaks, you could make it in 40 days through the desert. These guys seem to have some kind of wealth with them. They've got all these beautiful gifts and things that they're bringing. They seem to be educated. They know what's going on. As they come into Jerusalem to inquire about he who's born king of the Jews, they basically go straight to the king who's ruling over that area. Herod is a puppet of Rome, and he is ruling the people very cruelly. He's levying on them high taxes. He's oppressing them militarily. He's not a good guy. And they go to the king, but they get an audience with him immediately. 
So they must be sort of a big deal somehow. Who are these guys? You know what's really funny here as I read it in the story? They come before Herod and they tell him this question, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he didn't rejoice. What did he do? He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem with him. Wouldn't you think that all Jerusalem would suddenly rejoice? Here come these messengers who are looking. They, they have this sign, this star. We all saw it, but we didn't think of anything of it. But they knew. They knew that this meant something special. And they've come now to find the king. They've come now to find our deliverance from this oppression. So surely Herod, maybe he'd be troubled because it means that his power could be taken away. But wouldn't all Jerusalem rejoice at this news? But they don't. Instead, they're all troubled by the news because we don't want to stir up anything with Rome. We don't want to mess with the status quo. We don't want to rock the boat. And in fact, Herod goes and he gets the chief priests. The chief priest's job is to tell the people what the word of God says and how they should live. That's what their whole function is. The scribes, their job, who also come, is to, is to interpret and to write down the word of God. Their whole job is to come to the Bible and know the Bible and be able to tell anybody at any time, what does it say and how do we live? They're the, they're the keepers of the word. And they know immediately where the Christ is going to be born. He's supposed to come to Bethlehem. And so they tell the wise men, oh, he's going to Bethlehem. But notice, nobody goes with them to go find Jesus. Nobody goes with them from Jerusalem. They're all troubled, and they're all waiting back, and they're all staying apart. Even these chief priests and the scribes who know the word, they're not receiving it. They're not embracing it. The wise men from the east who are foreigners are doing better even than the chief priests. How strange is that? You know, it's such a mystery, too, because the Bible doesn't really tell us much about these guys. Pretty much everything I've said to us is what we know about them. You know, maybe they've come from another place farther away than Babylon. Maybe they are in a lineage of some of the enemies of Israel that lived around there that had encountered God's power. We don't know exactly. What we do know is they come from the east, so we have an idea about kind of where they've come from. But think about these other nations around Israel. Are they friendly? None of them. There's no place around Israel, especially to the east, that's going to be friends of the Israelites. There are no treaties. They've been at war forever. They've been conquering their different lands. They've been fighting each other. And somehow these three wise men know to come and worship God. How is that possible? It's possible because God puts something in their hearts. It's possible because God speaks to them in a way that they would understand. You know, God had shown his power to these nations for a long time. Do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured and was taken away by the Philistines and it was put on Dagon's temple? What happened? The idol fell on his face before God, before his power of his Ark. Everywhere that the Ark of the Covenant went, everywhere it went was pestilence and pain. And so the Philistines decided, let's put a, a, new, uh, a, a new animal who's just had a baby who will definitely go back to where it's nursing, so it's definitely not going to go to Israel, and we'll put the Ark on a cart, a brand new cart, and we'll just kind of send it away, and we'll see where it goes. And if God's really with them, it'll just go back to Israel. But surely it won't, because that's ridiculous. And as soon as they put the ark on there, the animal heads straight for Israel. And they are stunned. And what do they say? 
they say this God is not to be trifled with. Through judgment, because of idolatry and because of all of the sin that's happened, God has judged the nation of Israel. He's judged the Israelites, both Israel and Judah. They've gone into slavery and oppression. They've been carried away by, carried away by other nations. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego proved to Nebuchadnezzar that even the fires of the furnace would not, would not be able to extinguish God's plan for the people. And they stand firm, saying, we will not bow down to your idols. Instead, we will go even into the furnace, knowing that our God will save us. And they make the furnace so hot that they're going to be thrown into this fiery pit of torture, so hot that they're going to be thrown into that the guards who are escorting them into the pit are burned up in the flames as they walk in. And yet, while these flames are coming up and they're supposedly being cooked inside, they see the likeness of four men instead of three because God himself has come to rescue them. And then what do they proclaim? They proclaim throughout all of the known world that this God is the one God and he's not to be trifled with. We see Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. And though he is thrown in the lion's den, the lions do not eat him. And when he's brought out, Darius the king looks at him and says, Daniel, your God is the one true God, and pronounces it throughout all of the lands, the known world at the time, that Yahweh is the one true God. How incredible. Artaxerxes, the king of the known world of Persia, that has conquered everything all over everywhere. And the empires that are huge and that have taken over vast areas of land and armies that cannot be conquered. This man somehow has a cupbearer who comes before him with, with a heavy heart because Jerusalem is in shambles. And he says, please let me go that I might rebuild the walls and I might rebuild this place. And somehow God speaks to him and says, you should go and you should rebuild it. And so he goes and God gives him favor. And even Artaxerxes, who has proclaimed himself to be God of the known world, submits and says, this God is not to be trifled with. And so Nehemiah goes back and he restores the wall and they start to restore the temple. They restore Jerusalem. They restore all these places. And the scribes come back in and they are able to, through Ezra, come back to the word of God and teach the people again. And faith is building. And it's so exciting to see all that God is doing. And the scribes are telling everyone about what the word of God says. And it seems like this is going to be something special because Jerusalem is back Things are happening again despite the judgments that have come. But within a few generations, the Christ is born. And all of Jerusalem is troubled at his entrance instead of rejoicing. But there are these wise men. Why are they wise? You know, wise could mean a lot of things, especially in this context. At the time that Matthew was written, wise could mean that they were some kind of magic people or that they were just learned or academic people. It could mean that they were known as some kind of gurus or something like that. They could be astronomers. They could be all, you know, wise has this huge range of meaning. But I think the Bible is telling us something different. They're wise because they knew the word. They heard the stories. You know, they didn't even have it completely. They couldn't go back and look up Micah and see where is this Christ to be born. But they had just enough of the stories of hearing this God that you shouldn't trifle with. This God who is the creator of the known world. The God who emperors and kings are proclaiming that though they themselves think that they are God, in fact they must submit to this God. Because surely he is the creator. Surely he is the one who saves. 
they've seen and they've read the histories and the storybooks, and they know that this king who's going to be born is not just a normal king, that this one who's going to be born is to be worshipped. And so these wise men bring their gifts, and they come, and they seek Herod the king. Surely he'll know. Surely the Jews who have the actual word, surely those who have studied, surely those who have embraced what God has said, they'll know exactly where to go. And they do, but they won't go. So the wise men go. And coming before him, they have the only response that humanity can have, which is falling before him in worship. And then what do they do? They reach in their bags and they take out the treasures that they brought with him to bring to the king and they give him these beautiful treasures. And there's lots of sermons on those treasures and what that means. But we're not going to go into that now. But they give these things to Mary and to Joseph and this two-year-old little boy and submit down, down to him and say, we're going to worship you because you're not to be trifled with. It's an incredible story. And yet, standing in that moment, two-year-old Jesus is vulnerable. And he's looking on enemies of his nation who have come to worship him. These are people who are enemies of the Israelites. They're not allies. They're not friends. And he looks out on the world that looks like a garbage heap. He looks out on a world that's filled with sin. He looks out on a world where his own people, the scribes and the chief priests, will not even come seek him. And two-year-old baby Jesus is vulnerable. And so what does God do? God warns the wise men, don't go. Don't go back to Herod. Instead, they subvert and go back another way. And they warn Joseph, don't go back. Stay where you are, or don't stay where you are. Go quickly to Egypt, the place of God's enemies. Go quickly to Egypt. It's a 90-mile journey. It's going to take them weeks on the road. They have a two-year-old boy. They're going to uproot and leave with nothing, quickly, so as to save his life. And what did God do? God gave them provision from these rich wise men of these treasures that in the moment of their need, they could flee to Egypt. How incredible. It's one thing for Jesus to receive the gifts. It's another thing for Mary and Joseph to say, thank you, God. You've provided even for our journey. And now as sojourners, they go down into Egypt to stay there until God calls them back. And Jesus is growing up in foreign lands. Jesus is growing up surrounded by enemies. Jesus is growing up seeing the garbage heap of the world. Sin everywhere. Brokenness everywhere. And then God calls him not to the palace, not back to Jerusalem, not to these great places. The funds that they've been given through the gold probably extinguished. And now instead of going to Jerusalem, they go to Nazareth. It's like going to East St. Louis. God bless East St. Louis. I don't mean anything bad about it, but would you want to move there? It's like going to Flint, Michigan. It's not great water. Why would you move there? It's like going to Baghdad. Why would you move there? Nothing good comes out of there. It's a horrible place. It's garbage cheap. Surrounded by enemies. You're not safe there. It's not a good place to raise a kid. When you want, you want to raise a kid, go live in Boston so you're close to all those Ivy League, Ivy League schools or something. Come to St. Louis. It's a great town. we got a free zoo. It'd be fantastic. Don't go to Nazareth. Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But God saw fit that his son would grow up in the garbage heaps. That his son would grow up around those who are poor 
because he would instill in his son, who is fully God and fully man, that he would be the shepherd to save his people Israel. That he would have compassion on those who are living in the landfill. That he would have compassion on those who are trying to give food to their sheep and their flocks and are finding just the scraps of what others have thrown away. Jesus grows up having been trained in obedience. He is obedient even unto the point of death. That he would go to the cross for a people who are his enemies. Who would not come and bring him worship and not come and bring him treasures, but instead would spit in his face. People who would not give him the best they have, but instead look at God with attitudes that are like landfills. With hearts full of sin that reek with hearts full of enmity against God. And the Lord demonstrated his love for us in this, that Jesus Christ, while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. What a great story. What a great story because Jesus, who could have had anything he wanted, even just with the whisper of his word could create anything, Jesus was obedient even to the point of death for you and for me. And he saw what it was really like. He knew what the world was like. He knew what was in our hearts. He had lived it. He had seen it. And though he was without sin, he took all the punishment for our sin. What a great Savior we have. And in the midst of that, even the weeping of all those mothers in Bethlehem as the world sought to try to crush him. You know, Jesus, he is acquainted with our sorrows. He didn't grow up in a palace. He grew up on the run. He grew up hearing those cries. He grew up barely missing the sword. He grew up with his parents telling him about how God had preserved them, how God had given them a stable when there was no inn, how God had supplied these wise men who came out of nowhere and gave them all the treasure they needed to make it to Egypt to save his life. And ultimately, it wouldn't be so he could live a great long life and rule in Jerusalem over Egypt, over Israel. Ultimately, it would be so that he could go to a cross. He could go to a death as a traitor, and he could die that you and I instead would receive his royal robes. The beauty of our gospel, the beauty of Christmas, the beauty of this story, the beauty of the wise men is that God is near to us, and when we seek him, he draws near. The beauty of the story is that if you wake up and you feel like your whole life is in a landfill, maybe your sheep are trying to just find some food in the midst of all the junk out there. Maybe your family feels scattered everywhere. Maybe you feel like the provision of God is totally dried up. Maybe you look at your life and you see the attitude within you is more stink and rottenness because you're still living in the landfill and you're trying to bring treasures to Jesus to appease him instead of just giving him your life. The Bible is clear to us. You can never earn it. You can never earn his salvation. You can never earn his righteousness. The wise men were not saved because they came and brought Jesus treasures. They were saved. If they were saved, the Bible's not even clear about that. I'm guessing because they came and worshipped. Maybe if they heard the gospel. But they were saved because Jesus went to the cross. Because he died and rose again. Because he lives. He intercedes for us. He is our salvation. The word of God tells us that we should confess our sins. That we should submit ourselves before him. That we should seek him. Not seek the treasure to give him. This whole holiday is wrapped up in these great stories and wonderful things, and it never tells you some of the bad details, does it? You never hear about the wise men fleeing and then children being massacred in a town. 
don't hear about that. But the reality is that Jesus came to save a landfill people who were his enemies, that he would bring us out of that junk and into his righteousness and peace and joy. How does that happen? It happens by saying, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I don't want my attitude to reek anymore. Lord, I want to be a treasure of yours. Lord, I can't earn it myself. But Father, because you went to the cross for me, because you died, because Lord Jesus, because you rose again, I submit my life to you, and I trust you that your sacrifice was enough. And so I trust you. And if you trust him like that, you can be sure that the king of the world who loves us, the king of the world who came down into the garbage heap of our world, will pull you and rescue you, bring you to himself, and clothe you with his righteousness that is foreign to you. And though we are his enemies, he will make us his sons. The great hope of Christmas is that God has made us his people. We belong to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Lord, we are yours. Lord, help us this Christmas to be bold with your word. Lord, help us this Christmas to remember, to remember all the great things you've done and to remember all of your word and your covenant promises. Lord, help us to see and seek you. Lord, don't let us draw our eyes and our attention away with things or with traditions or with ideas, but instead, Lord, let us be close to you. Father, help us that we would love you with pure love. Forgive us and purge us of sin that's in us. Help us, God, instead to be a blessing to you in every single way. And so, Lord, this Christmas, we remember you and all that you've done. Lord, we submit to you and we say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your life. Lord, we are yours and we belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.